the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Hello, and welcome to In the Word, a ministry of Calvary Chapel of Orlando. We hope that God speaks to you today as we join senior Pastor Will Ramirez in a study of the book of Numbers. God had been faithful to bring the children of Israel out of Egypt through the desert wilderness just as he promised. He was preparing them to enter the promised land, a land flowing with milk and honey. The first generation of Israelites had died out because of their idolatry and rebellious behavior towards God. Now is the time for the next generation to take hold of God's promises and to rely on Him. God had commanded Moses and the leaders to number the men to see how many would be ready for battle. They went tribe by tribe counting the congregation. God handled an issue that came up about property for a set of five sisters that were unwed and had no father. God revealed His heart towards all people despite the cultural norms of the day. We join Pastor Will in Numbers chapter 27, verse 7, as he continues to explain the equality of men and women while maintaining their separate but necessary God-given roles. Families require structure to operate soundly, and God, in His Word, and in His wisdom, for whatever reason, has determined that the leadership role in the family falls to the husband. Now, why is that? Well, that's a Bible study all on its own, probably multiple Bible studies, so we don't really have the, the time to go to that scope tonight. But suffice it to say, some of it has to do with how mankind fell in the garden. There was a specific way that happened, and in 1 Timothy chapter 2, the Lord explains that there are, are consequences because of that. Number two, some of it has to do with how God created men and women differently, and if you haven't figured that out yet, you haven't been married long enough. We are different, very different. All of it has to do with the fact that God knows us better than ourselves and therefore knows what's best for a family to operate well, much better than I ever could or Dr. So-and-so as his own TV show ever could. Now you might be saying, well, yeah, but then doesn't that make a woman lesser than a man? I'd argue that the man on point in a military squad is one of the most important individuals on the team. If he gets off and doesn't see the enemy or he leads you down into a trap, Everybody dies. I would say he's incredibly important, maybe the most important member of the team. And yet, there's someone else who has a role of commander or captain, not the guy on point. If importance stems from titles, can I dare say you've missed the point? Can I dare say that your issue isn't an equality issue, but a pride issue? If your issue is about who has the title of who's in charge, can I dare say your problem isn't with equality? Your problem is with you want to be in charge? And that's a pride issue. I don't sit around my house and going, the Lord gave me the responsibility to be the leader of my family, and y'all better get in line. I get on my knees and I go, God, I don't know what to do. Can you please help me? And many times as I have decisions to make here at the church, I'm in the same spot. I don't sit there at my desk and tap my pen and go, well, you know, I know how this goes because I'm super pastor. I go, God, what do I do? 
How would you handle this situation? And I'm sure if I polled a bunch of people, they'd be like, well, I know what I would do if I were the pastor. But I don't really know if that's what God wants us to do. I think he wants us in that place where we're going, God, I don't know what to do. But I know you do. And so will you lead me so that I can lead these people into what's right and what's true and what's just? He might be saying, okay, well, I get how family works, but what about this whole women not being pastors thing? Doesn't the Bible discriminate against women there? Turn to First Timothy chapter two. You had no clue Numbers 27 could be so interesting. I'm not gonna go through this whole passage because that, again, is a Bible study or two in and of itself. I wanna highlight a couple things. Verse 12, chapter two, very important. But I do not suffer, which means to permit or allow, a woman to teach nor to usurp authority over the man, but to be in silence. Now, It doesn't mean women have to be quiet. What he's saying there is to not be in the role of of teacher pastor. Where it says there not to teach, literally the way the phrasing is in the Greek, it means not to occupy the position of the teacher in the church. He says, I do not allow that. Okay, so that's number one, a clear command. Chapter three, 1 Timothy, verse two. A bishop then must be blameless, the husband of one wife. You cannot qualify for that if you are of the female gender, okay? That is a requirement for ministry and it's not just interchangeable, okay? And the reason we know that, let's go down here to verse four and five. The third requirement Paul gives. They also need to be one that rules well their own house, having his children in subjection with all reverence. For if a man does not know how to rule his own house, how shall he take care of the church of God. Because of the family structure, a woman cannot occupy that role of senior pastor. They cannot occupy the role of elder because they cannot meet those qualifications. They don't rule their own home. That's the job that God has given to the husband to do. So because of that, a woman cannot be a pastor. When I bring this up, you need to realize something because people go, oh, see, so the Bible does make women lesser. No, This is, in fact, the only position, the only area of service that God prohibits from them. The Bible says a woman could pray publicly. She can prophesy publicly. She could, so I mean, we could get up here and have a gal share a testimony. She could come and share a word from the Lord. All those things are okay, but she cannot occupy the regular teaching position of pastor. Okay? I'm not, I didn't write it. Throw the tomatoes up there, not here. That is what God says. So why is that ruling position therefore denied them in the church? Well, again, for whatever reason, God has determined that men are to lead. Notice in these requirements here, if you read through them all, with the exception of being able to handle the word of God well, to be able to teach, there is no mention about skill, intelligence, or acumen. None of that here. None of it. I have met some of the most amazing Bible teachers I've ever met are gals. It has nothing to do with that. It has nothing to do with competence, intelligence, acumen, skill set, training, any of that. None of that is mentioned here. It's not about capability. It's about God's designed plan. And what is that plan? Turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 1. God's plan is to use people in a way that points to his power, his intelligence, and his ability. Look at 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 26 through 29. For you see your calling, brethren, how that not many wise men after the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble are called. But God has chosen the foolish things of the world to confound the wise. And God has chosen the weak things of the world to confound the things which are mighty. And the base things, the opposite of noble, of the world. And things which are despised as God chosen, yea, and things which are not to bring to naught the things that are. Why? That no flesh should glory in his presence. Being in this spot <laughs> is not anything to be proud of. Your qualifications, you're weak, you're foolish, and you're not very noble. You're not the cream of the crop. It's funny, when I bump into people I went to high school with who they knew me before I got saved, but not after I got saved, guys I played ball with. And they, I bump into them sometimes at you know, Target or whatever, we're shopping, and like, hey, well, how you doing? Whatever, you know, we'll talk and talk and talk and we'll catch up. What are you doing? And they say, what are you doing? I go, I pastor a church. And you, you just gotta see their eyes get real big and they're like, what? 
because it doesn't seem to fit the guy they knew because it didn't. It didn't fit. You know, when I hear people complain about women not being allowed to be pastors, it reveals something to me. They're not interested in God's power being shown. They're interested in man's ability being shown. Every time I have a conversation with somebody about this and I say, what's the problem? God says it very clearly. I just know very many gifted women. I do too. I know tons of gifted women. My own wife is a Bible teacher. I think she's way better than me personally. However, God's chosen the foolish things of the world to confound the wise. The weak things to confound the strong right? So when we look at this and they say, well, I just think they're qualified too. Certainly they are, but it doesn't have anything to do with that. It doesn't have to do with competence, intelligence, or acumen, which means again, it's not an equality issue. It's a pride issue. And last time I checked, things don't turn out very good when we do things our way. Let me ask you a question because the majority of churches don't teach what I'm teaching you tonight. How's the church doing? Just an honest question. How are we doing right now? I don't think we're doing very well. I don't think we're doing very well. The church is not doing well since the majority of them, not that this is the only view they've changed, but they've changed a view of a woman's role in leadership. I don't think the church has improved. I don't think we've gotten better. We're more compromised than we've ever been. We're losing influence in our culture more than we ever have. We're not moving forward. We're moving in the opposite direction. In Isaiah 3, verse 12, the Lord, when he is talking to his people because they're astray, he says this. It's a fascinating quote. The Lord, in looking at his people and how they've been under his judgment, he says this. As for my people, children are their oppressors and women rule over them. What is God saying there? He's not making a derogatory remark toward women. What the Lord is talking about, the horrible condition of his people, he lists that one of those conditions is that women are ruling over them. It's the equivalent of him saying, basically, I'm trying to show my power through you, but you won't have it. So you're going to put the people you think are best in the positions of leadership. So guess what? You're on your own. I don't want to be on our own. I don't want to do things just because the culture says, well, this is wrong. We we should do it this way. I want to say, God, I want your power to be manifested here and your power alone. I want no flesh to glory in your presence. We're going to do it your way, not our way. Because I don't want the testimony that God says about Calvary Chapel Orlando or Will Ramirez and my family to say, Well, I guess you're just doing things all on your own because you're doing it your way. You know, I don't want God to come to us like he did to Ephesus and say, if you don't repent, I'm gonna remove your lampstand. And you know what's interesting about the church at Ephesus? It was a working church. He says, you guys, you got servants everywhere. You got truth, you got scripture, you've got all these things going on that everything looks perfect, but you've left your first love. I don't want that to happen to us. I don't want the Lord to remove his presence from us because he says, well, I guess you guys have figured it out. You've got it good on your own. I think it would be normal for us to expect that there would be things like this. You say, well, why why can't we just have, you know, anybody do the job? Well, because then anybody would get the glory. So I'm going to pick the people who are most unlikely and I'm going to put them in that spot so I get the glory. That's why as men, we can never boast and be like, yeah, we get to be pastors. (laughs) It's the other way around, guys. God chose us because we're the weakest vessels because it would give him the most glory. So none of us can boast about it. The Lord doesn't want us to think we know better than him. He doesn't want to leave us in that place. So I don't want that either. It's not about equality. It's about humility. It's about God's power working through weak vessels, okay? So when we look at these things in the scripture, recognize God's clear statements show that he values women and men exactly the same. As Galatians 3 says, our inheritance is exactly the same. That's how he sees us. However, We have different roles in life. And the scripture does make a differentiation there in certain places, okay? Now, with all those issues taken care of, it's time to enter the promised land, which means it's time for Moses to step aside. So Numbers 27, verse 12. And the Lord said unto Moses, 
Get you up into this Mount Abirim and see the land which I have given unto the children of Israel. When you have seen it, you shall be gathered unto your people as Aaron your brother was gathered. For you rebelled against my commandment in the desert of Zin and the strife of the congregation to sanctify me at the water before their eyes. That is the water of Meribah and Kadesh in the wilderness of Zin. So God tells Moses it's time for him to die. And so he tells him to come up into the mountains. The Abarim means the translates to the beyond mountains. So it's the hilly range that's right there on the side of Jordan where they're all encamped. So it's the one that's right behind them. It's the mountain range uh, northeast of the Dead Sea. Its most notable peak is Mount Nebo. That's the one Moses will eventually climb and where he'll die. From there, you could see all the promised land on the other side of the river. So even though Moses might not be able to go in, the Lord says, I do want to give you the perfect view. So at least you can see it all, even though you can't go in. And why can't Moses go in? But the Lord reminds him, for when you have seen it, you shall be gathered unto your people, just like Aaron, your brother was gathered. You're going to take your place, Moses, beside Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Joseph, which is a beautiful thing, right? I mean, he's, he's going to take his place besides the great men and women of faith throughout Israel's history. And yet it is a reminder though, it was a life that wasn't lived to all that God wanted for him. For the Lord tells him, you rebelled against my commandment in the desert of Zin. Now, when did he do that? Well, remember when Israel's complaining because they, they didn't have any water? And Moses went to the Lord and he said, Lord, they're complaining about water again. The Lord goes, hey, I know, they need water. Everybody needs water. He goes, I want you to go out and speak to the rock and water will come out and it'll take care of everybody and their flocks. But Moses is just, he's had it. It's been 38 years of dealing with their garbage and he, and he just goes out and he's mad and he grabs his staff and he comes out to the people and he goes, shall I fetch water again for you rebels? And he struck the rock three times. Water came out and God fed the people, but the Lord goes, come here, Moses, we need to talk. And he pulls Moses aside and he says, Moses, I told you to speak to the rock. I didn't tell you to hit the rock. You gave the people the impression I'm mad at them. I'm not mad at them. They need need water. I'm happy to give them water. Moses, you can't go into the promised land now because you did not sanctify me in the eyes of the people. You openly defied my authority. Why did God want him to speak to the rock and not hit it? Because he wanted to show that he was different. The word sanctify means to set apart, to show as holy, to show as unique, to show as different. God wanted to show his people, I'm not like all these other idols out there. I'm not mad at you because you need water. I'm happy to provide water for you. But Moses failed to relay that by the way he handled the situation, by defying God's authority, disobeying his command, and hitting the rock. Guys, it is possible to be saved and to take your place among those who have gone to be with the Lord before you, but to miss out on God's full plan for your life. Can I exhort you, please don't make the same mistake Moses made. I have been at the deathbed of many people who've done this exactly. God placed a call upon their life or God had a plan for their life and they just decided to say, God, I I just really don't wanna do it that way. I wanna do my own thing. And at the end of their life, there they are. They live with a wasted life, no relationship with their family, have no relationship with their kids, no relationship with the church, no friends. They've been alone most of their life. And, and then now they're here, they come to their deathbed and they know I need to get right with God. And they do, and they're, they're gonna go to heaven. But you know, they, they sit there with you and you just see a look in their eyes like, I wasted my life, didn't I? And I, I have nothing else to say, but yeah, yeah, you did. Praise the Lord, you're forgiven now. Praise the Lord, you came to your senses at the end. What, like a Samson, what a waste. Don't. Do that. Don't make those decisions. Do what God says. Obey his word and make good choices. Moses, he feels the weight of what's about to happen, but his heart is still toward the people. And this is what you love about Moses. You know, he's not thinking about himself right now. He's thinking about the people. and He doesn't want them to be leaderless. So before he climbs that mountain, he asks God to raise up a successor. Verse 15, and Moses spake unto the Lord saying, let the Lord, 
The God of the spirits of all flesh set a man over the congregation, which may go out before them and which may go in before them, which may lead them out and which may bring them in. Why? So that the congregation of the Lord be not as sheep which have no shepherd. He loved them. Even though he made that blunder, he loved them. And he's thinking about them when the Lord tells him it's time to die. That's a true leader. With his own death approaching, Moses is very aware that we're more than just flesh and blood. He says here, let the Lord, the God of the spirits of all flesh. He knows this thing isn't the end. He knows that when, you know, this body goes in the grave, that's not it. There's something that inhabits this body. It's called my spirit. It's called my soul. And if there's any evidence of that, it's the fact that I'm still me, but this thing changes over time. It sprouts hair where it's not supposed to. As you get older, it goes this way instead of, you know, this. I have my boys, and when they would get older and they'd hit those years, they lean out, and then they start to get that muscular kind of form and stuff. And then, of course, me, I look at it, and I'm like, ah, I can look like that again, you know? And then you go and get on the treadmill for four minutes, and then you're done. But then you hit a point, and then it just all starts going down, right? I mean, the natural forces begin to work its way. And eventually, we die with this body. We shed it, right? But throughout that whole time, I'm still me. I'm still me. I look at my kids and it doesn't matter how old they get. I look at them and I go, you're still the same guy you're caught running around the room. You know, you're still the same girl that I always sneak and stuff. They're still the same even though they grow and mature. It's still them. That's because their souls, their spirit is living inside. But the body changes. And he knew with his death approaching that we're more than flesh and blood. And listen, every soul will appear before God for judgment. He knew that. So he calls the Lord the God of the spirits of all flesh. Someday we're all going to stand before him. And he asked God, he says, sit a man over the congregation. You know, I would ask you a question tonight. You know, do you, are you aware of that, that it's more than just this life? Have you prepared for that time? Have you made preparations to meet your maker? Because the truth is, tomorrow's not promised to anybody. You want to make sure you make those preparations. They're the most important preparations you'll make. Because they last for eternity. Now, Moses is also aware that God loves his people and doesn't want them leaderless. And he explains why a leader is important. He says that he may go out before them and may go in before them and which may lead them out and which may bring them in. The phrase there before them means to go at their head. See, a leader shows the way to go, but not by pointing people in the direction. Go do that. And then while he's not doing it. Remember Jesus charged the Pharisees? He said, beware the Pharisees who teach you to put all these burdens on you, but they won't lift one finger to do it themselves. That's not a leader. That's a tyrant. But a leader leads from the front, leads out from the front, leads by example. And secondly, a leader's important because they're a shepherd. They're someone who feeds and cares for the flock. A leader's job is to care for the people he's leading. They do so by serving them. That was something Moses forgot when he lost his temper and struck the rock. He forgot he was their servant. They weren't there to serve him. Jesus, of course, is the ultimate example of this. He said, the son of man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. You know, when people tell me, I feel like I've got a call upon my life. And I say, okay, well, what are you doing for the Lord right now? How are you serving people? How are you dying to self? How are you giving your life away? Well, you know, I don't know about that. I think I'm just called to teach. Hit the road, buddy. I won't let you near this thing because all you're gonna do is hurt people. There are numerous times when I, I show up somewhere and someone's supposed to meet me and they don't show. Numerous times, you know, when I make my plans and, and I say, I'm going to do this and this is how it's going to be and, and then it doesn't work out that way. I can't rant and rave and throw a temper tantrum. Oh, they're wasting my time or they're this or they're that. I can't demand, you know, as they come into my office and all right, they're going to do what I say and they're going to take my advice. That doesn't happen sometimes. And I can't throw a temper tantrum and go, don't you know I'm the pastor? I'm there to serve because I serve the Lord. He's my boss. I'm not there to be served. Jesus gave his life away and 
If you feel called to be a leader, you need to do that as well. We need examples and servants more than ever today. We need a lot less leaders, a lot more examples and servants. This is in God's heart. He wants these things. So he tells Moses to raise up Joshua for the task, verse 18. And the Lord said unto Moses, I want you to take you Joshua, the son of Nun. It's actually Nun, son of Nun, a man in whom is the spirit. He did have parents. Take you, Joshua, the son of Nun, a man in whom is the spirit, and lay your hand upon him, and set him before Eleazar the priest, and before all the congregation, and give him a charge in their sight. And you shall put some of your honor upon him, so that all the congregation of the children of Israel may be obedient. So Moses is now to begin sharing the leadership with Joshua. He says, Moses, I want you to go take Joshua, whom is the spirit, I want you to lay your hand upon him. Now that's interesting because it means Moses gets a bit of a reprieve for a little bit. Not long, just, you know, maybe a year, but he's going to get a bit of reprieve. He's not going to die yet because he needs to be involved in this process. Otherwise, some might see it as an act against the leadership of Moses, like Joshua usurping Moses' authority. Remember, that got the nation in trouble in the past, and they're not going to go for that. Joshua is a guy that we would expect to be in this role. He's one of their two heroes in that dark time of their unbelief. He's Moses' right-hand man. He has been trained for the job. He's the one that would be right. But notice here, what's the qualification? It's none of those things. It says, a man in whom is the spirit. One of the most important traits for a leader is this, to be filled with God's spirit and therefore to be filled with power, his power for the task, not your own power, but his power. So Joshua's the guy because of that. You can be the most talented, charismatic leader to grace the earth, but if you aren't operating in God's power, then you won't impact the lives of those you're leading for eternal things. You won't at all. So he says, I want you to take him, lay your hand on him, set him before the priest and before all the people and give him a charge in their sight. The phrase give him a charge means you're going to appoint him to this task or this role in front of everybody. And when you've done that, you're going to put some of your honor upon him. The word there, honor, refers to his authority. You're going to put some of your authority upon him so that all of the congregation will learn to follow his lead while you're still around. How much authority will Joshua have? Well, verse 21 tells us a lot. And he shall stand, Joshua, shall stand before Eleazar the priest, who shall ask counsel for him after the judgment of Urim before the Lord. Remember they had the Urim and the Thummim. We think there were two stones that the priest would use. And you would ask a question, a yes or no question. And say, Lord, you know, do you want us to go this way? Or do you want us to go do this? And he would fish in and pull something out. And whatever stone it was, was what the Lord, the answer was from the high priest. And so Eleazar and, and Joshua are going to work together on that now instead of Moses and Eliezer. So we're going to see this transfer of authority, this transfer of power, where Joshua is going to have a lot of influence. So again, this is going to buy Moses a bit of time. He's not going to die yet, so Joshua can ease into this role alongside Moses until the people get used to following him. Just like Moses and Aaron ran things together, now Joshua and Eliezer would be in charge of all the comings and goings while this transition took place. And that would prepare the people to move on without Moses. It says here, and at his word they shall go out, and at his word they shall go in. That's Joshua, both he and all the children of Israel with him, even all the congregation. So Moses did as the Lord commanded him, and he took Joshua, and he set him before Eleazar the priest and before all the congregation, and he laid his hands upon him and gave him a charge as the Lord commanded by the hand of Moses. So the Lord here gives the instructions to Moses, and Moses obeys it and does what God says. While we don't know the timing of our death like Moses, we can have the heart of Moses to plan 
and prepare for the future. And I don't have time because we're out of time tonight to go into you know, what the Bible says about planning, but I want to encourage you. Sometimes people think planning is, is not trusting God, but that's not all. That's not it at all. The Bible talks about you know, the steps of a righteous man are ordered by the Lord. It doesn't mean you don't plan. It says, go to the ant, thou sluggard. Don't just sit around and do nothing. The Bible says, make plans, and then the Lord will guide your steps. So plan for the future, plan things out, but then trust the Lord to guide your steps. And if he wants to course correct, let him do so because he's in charge. Oh Lord, we uh, had an interesting adventure tonight in your word. And yet, Lord, we we do trust you. We don't want to be those who don't trust your word. We don't want to be those who think we know better than your word. We we want to be those uh, not who take things into our own hands, but who are just yielded to you and we trust you all the way. So Lord, we commit that to you tonight. We want to be a people who are obedient to you. We want to be individuals who do what you say. Lord, who make good choices, knowing that you love us, Lord, that your, your heart towards us is good, and, and that you always have our best in mind, even when we don't understand your commands. So, Lord, we love you, and we want to move in your power, not our own. So we yield our lives to you tonight in Jesus' name. God was finishing out the preparations for his people to finally enter the promised land. The last thing that had to be done was Moses stepping down as a leader. He would raise up Joshua to take his place. Many of the Israelites missed out on God's promises due to their lack of faith and their rebellious nature. Sin is serious and can be fatal, but it doesn't have to be the end. God is merciful, and should we repent of our sin and turn to him, He will by no means turn us away. He himself said, Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden. I will give you rest. Come to Jesus. If you have any spiritual or physical needs, please contact us. We would love to pray for you and assist you in any way we can. You can reach us at Calvary Chapel Orlando at 407-523-0800 during our office hours Tuesday through Friday, 9 a.m. to 4 p.m. This has been In the Word with Pastor Will, a ministry of Calvary Chapel of Orlando. You can listen to all of Pastor Will's sermons and find other valuable resources online at www.calvarychapelorlando.com or on the Calvary Chapel Orlando app, available on iTunes and Google Play. Thank you for joining us today. We will see you next time as we continue to learn, walk, and live in the Word.